Welcome to Grace in Public, preaching and teaching in the heartland and all around the world. Historical revival is a very interesting subject to study. And as I've been reading and studying for this series, we see the, it's amazing the details, the accounts. They're so edifying. Please listen to this clip about the qualities of revival. What is revival? It is simply something that comes to an individual on the terms of Calvary, on the terms of the finished work, on the terms of the cross personally, according to the word of God. Why is it that when so many Christians profess to know Christ, that there are so few real genuine revivals in the history of of Christianity and these revivals are so brief and only last for perhaps a couple of years. For an example, the Wales revival lasted two years. The last six months was devastating because of demonic counterfeits and signs and miracles that were from the pit of hell and not from God and the word of God was absolutely without power or opportunity of force in that movement the last six months. The first year and a half, it was beautiful. Why is it of the 30 islands of Indonesia that when the revival was over, over the 350 islands, in those 30 islands, there is more immorality and sin than there ever war was before it happened. In both cases, in Indonesia and the Wales Revival, it was a subjective move of God trying to draw people out to the Word, but it was emotionalism and subjectivity. Genuine and real and honest revival that didn't, wasn't followed up with the Word of God. Evan Roberts said, if I ever had it to do over again when that revival was over, I would feed that revival with the objective word of God and, and not depend upon gifts and miracles, but depend, he said, upon how to think with God. In the book of Acts, the word of God went every place. And in Acts 17, 6, it turned the world upside down. The first important step in revival and how Satan takes advantage of those that do not pursue this course, that do not meet the terms of a personal faith in Jesus Christ and identification with a personal cross. The first important step in a revival is the problem with the Christian's church backslidden state. It is why even when there's 1,500 pastors in the northeast seaboard to get together, 1,500 pastors three years ago had a time in Boston, and they ended up on Saturday night, their last night of the week, with only 1,500 people. One person per church represented. That's not revival. They tried to manufacture one, but that's not revival. 
That's doing something outwardly to produce outward unity when the hearts have not been revived inwardly according to God's word. Now, in the Amplified Version, in Isaiah 57:15, this is what the Word of God says. For thus says the High and Lofty One, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, with whom also, who is of a thoroughly penitent and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart, that that processes every area and aspect of the soul and penetrates every area of the inner being, the heart. Notice it. To revive the heart of the thoroughly penitent. Then it says, bruised with sorrow for sin. Bruised with sorrow for sin. What is God dealing with in the condition of his provision to revive? Hearts that have been bruised with sorrow because of sin. What is the major incapacitation of the local individual church of Jesus Christ, they have been bruised with the sorrow of sin and they have never met the terms, even though they are saved and going to heaven, of being revived from the bruises and the sorrow of sin, which is personally, involuntarily, subjectively occupied their capacity for life. Your hurts and your wounds are incurable. Jeremiah 30, verse 12a. And your bruises, they're not incurable. They're impossible to ever deal with outside of God's standard for revival. I want you to think of it tonight. How Christians spend... So much of their life through the ignorance of truth in the norm and standard of the word of God, which gives them an option to be quickened just exactly like God teaches in his word. So Jeremiah 30 verse 12 says, for the days of the Lord, for thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous. So here's the people in the Christian church, their hurt is incurable and their wound is grievous, but they keep on keeping on believing God. For there is none to plead your cause for the pressing together of your wound. You have no healing device, no binding ointment. This is what it's saying. That unless we are quickened according to God's word, there is no healing. Our problem is incurable and our hurt is impossible to remove and our wound is grievous. And we may prevent 
from getting worse, but we will never be delivered from the innate problems that plague the subjective emotions of the church of Jesus Christ. And while people will go to heaven, and while they will have days of happiness and outward expression of joy, the hurt is incurable and the wounds are grievous and there's absolutely no healing outside of revival according to God's terms. Now that's why we deal so deeply preaching the Word, the Word, the Word, the Word. We know that when people are revived according to God's Word, then they will have new life that's resident and powerful over all the temporal value systems of the past and present and all the effects of their humanity. But pride, unbelief, and ego prevent God from doing His transforming work of grace that elevates a person's soul so it corresponds to God because God breathes. We inhale God. We exhale God. We live in God. We're revived with God. We thrive with God. We're renewed with God. We're motivated by God. We experience God. We think in God. We feel in God. We respond to God. We confess in God. We believe with God. We go forward with God. We take those seeming defeats with God. And we end up getting renewed and revived according to God's terms. According to God's word, this is the tragedy of it all. Here's the average Christian that's born again and thank God he will go to heaven. But when he does not get filled with God's words and God's norms and standards, this is what happens. Sooner or later, because of his apathy passivity, and failing to take positive options toward God's Word, God begins to wound him as if he is an enemy. And God begins to chastise him with cruel chastisement. And then that believer blames people, self, or things in all three Scapegoats are wrong. He simply needs to get into what we're going to mention in a moment. He needs to be humble. Not self-condemning. Not introspection. Not reactionary. But humble. Who does God revive? The humble. Who does God revive in heart? The humble. What does that word mean? In Proverbs 3.34, he gives grace to the lowly or the humble. In James 4.6, my Zona Karen is given to the humble. The one thing he needs is for God's experiential provision to be for him 
because the whole provision of God is with him. And the thing that he refuses to be as he's occupied with the negativity of his own frustrations and insecurity and ignorance and dilemma, the thing he refuses is to be humble in the sight of God. And so Jesus said in James 4.10, Humble yourselves in the sight of God. He refuses to because he's too occupied with the hurt which is incurable and the wound that is grievous and the bruises and running sores of the effects of sin. He's living in the law of flesh instead of allowing the humility of God's grace to bring him into the law of the spirit of life. Notice what the 13th verse of Jeremiah 30 says. There is none to plead your cause. There is no healing device. Verse 14. All your lovers and allies have forsaken you or forgotten you. Listen. For I have hurt you as though with the wound of an enemy, as though with the chastisement of a cruel and merciless foe, because of the greatness of your perversity and guilt, because your sins are glaring and innumerable. It doesn't mean that your sins astonish God. It means that you refuse to deal with your sins in the humility of Jesus Christ. The fact that they were all placed upon Him, you refuse to deal with them in the humility that they are paid for, that you are free to receive revival according to His words. By grace. Now notice what Jesus says here. Why do you cry out because of your hurt? The natural result of your sins, the natural result. Your pain is deadly, incurable. Psychologists or counselors or religious services or music or sublimation will not take it away. Because of the greatness of your perversity and guilt, reiteration, because your sins are glaring and innumerable, that is, the ones that you won't accept paid for by Jesus Christ, I have done these things to you because you won't accept me as Lord, Savior, Redeemer, God, Cleanser, Forgiver, Purger, Motivator, Energizer, Peacemaker, Reconciliation. You won't accept all that God is simply through humility. So I've got to keep crushing you to get your attention that the only solution is the grace of the finished work and the operation of the word freely in your soul through faith. I like what he says next. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured. Notice the change. Even though we're in that state, God says they better not say anything against you. Because I still paid for your sins. And all that devour you in that helpless, hopeless, guilty state, I will devour. And all your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. It sounds like, judge not, lest you be judged. In the measure you judge, it should be meted back to you. It sounds like, 
Thou art inexcusable, O man, who condemnest another, in that thou condemnest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou doest the same thing. It sounds like Psalm 64, when they started a diligent search for people's iniquity. And God didn't say the iniquity wasn't there. He said, I'll take everything you're doing and bring it back on your tongue and even you, your friends, your friends that you've always had will flee from you because of what I'm going to do to you because you're searching out people's sins. God is very sensitive on the issue of the sins being placed on Christ because it hurt to pay for them. And he doesn't, don't like us dealing with them again by crucifying Christ over again with our attitudes and negative minds. He said, listen, they who despoil you shall become a spoil, and all who prey upon you I will give for a prey. Listen to this, to Israel, for I will restore health to you, and I will what? I will heal your wounds. God never leaves his people without a promise. There is no condition that you or I or anyone is in tonight that we don't have a beautiful, precious, precious living promise from God's word. And all God is after is a place for his grace to grow. And secondly, a place for his grace to go. You see, until humility takes over my soul, grace has no place to flow. And grace has no place to go, and I have no place to grow. Humility isn't self-effacement. Humility isn't self-condemnation. Humility is being honest about the truth and agreeing with God, but believing it was all placed on Christ. And then thinking with grace. Taipono Frosuni. Lowly, accepting truth and thinking with grace. What does it mean that you and I think with grace, though we admit the truth? That's revival. That's individual revival. And he gives grace to those that do that. And they become quickened in their state according to God's Word at that moment. All brand new, regardless whatever they've done. And they remember it all starts out when the Father has made us to be meet to be partakers of his inheritance with the saints. In Colossians 1.12, Hikano, and it means that he's made us qualified. We've been rendered fit to have a perfect position in our standing with Christ through Jesus Christ's work. Now, I think you can see tonight that revival begins with the simplest thing in the world. A guilty, wicked sinner that believes it was all paid for. A helpless, hopeless sinner 
that confesses it but believes it's all paid for. And then, believing that through the filling of the Spirit and the quickening of the Word of God, that He will be a conqueror with amazing strength. And two things we want to do before we close tonight. When the Word of God says that we be tossed to and fro no more as children, who by every wind of doctrine and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, that we are led into emptiness and loneliness and all the bruises of our sins subjectively paralyze our capacity for life. And though we believe that Christ died, we don't experience our death with Him. Though we believe He paid for it all, we don't enjoy the power that did it. So there's wounds and hurts that are incurable and bruises that are grievous. Then because of emptiness and loneliness and not being quickened according to God's Word, He chastises us and disciplines us and even treats us as if we were enemies because we're alienated from His life through unbelief, lacking personal faith through specific scriptures of grace. What happens? This is what happens. The wisdom which is from below is first earthly. Epigeos. Its source is from the earth. Secondly, it is sukikos, sensual. That that comes from the earth is internalized and controls the capacity of the soul. And thirdly, it is devilish. Adotmonides, the source is demons. And so all of a sudden, Ephesians 4.14 fits with James 3.15. And Satan lies in wait to take over that capacity that is not filled by God's Word. And Ephesians 4.14 says he lies in wait to move in to internalize that that comes from the earth source, the philosophy and strategy of evil projected to the empty souls of cattle believers. And then it's internalized because we're empty. And then the source of demons take over as far as influence goes. This is wisdom from below. And it leaves the believer seeking for peace and not finding it. And then being frustrated and perplexed. And the hurt is incurable. And the bruises are grievous. And the Christian has a long face much of the time. Or he goes back into a, an amazing effort to fill that empty, lonely capacity. While he smiles on the outside, he has much pain on the inside. But he has salvation and he knows it. Now think of it. But wisdom from above 
is first peaceable, agonos. And it simply means that we begin to enter into something that is peaceable and gentle. And gentle means inward benefits. So the Word of God, directly from the finished work, throne of Christ, internalizes the emptiness and energizes the capacity to think and feeds the appreciating emotions that respond. And the soul begins to be filled up with pure wisdom from above. And it gives us inward benefits. And Paul says, I most gladly, two adverbs, hedestic and melon. And it means I take great pleasure to the highest degree of happiness in my infirmity, asthenia, which means my helpless, hopeless state in this world's order. For God's strength, His resident power, is made perfect. And the words made perfect in the Greek of Toledo, it means that I'm functioning, operating with a full provision from God above in the finished work. I am being empowered. I reject the wisdom from below, this earthly, sensual, and devilish. I'm only open to the wisdom from above. My sins are paid for. Grace is eternal. Love did it all. I've confessed to Jesus Christ. I'm believing. I'm being transformed. And I take great pleasure in what God's Word says and God's life is doing. I'm being quickened according to God's Word through grace. I want you to think of it for a moment tonight. So we have two options, and they're not good ones, unless we take James 4, 6. He giveth more grace to the humble, but God resists the proud. Did you hear me? And giveth greater grace to the humble. What does it mean? The only requirement for us for a beautiful revival is humility. Not doing something to be humble, accepting what has been done and acting upon it inwardly by faith. Thank you for tuning in. If you can, don't forget to send a tax-deductible gift to us. Your generous donation made to our program promotes this broadcast and ones like it going out on the Internet and broadcast on local stations throughout the United States. So please prayerfully consider what you can give. Find out how to give your donation at www.graceandpublic.com. Yes, God revives the humble. Wasn't that amazing teaching? It's wounds and the wounds of sin. And we do see as a characteristic of historical revival, as I've been studying for this series, you see that the confession of sin and the closing down of sinful establishments <laughs> and the desire for holiness and joy and the manifestation of God's Spirit and wholesale repentance happens in many forms and 
it seems to sweep through communities. When people think, perhaps, the scripture does talk about repentance from sin, and that healing is directly related to repentance. We may think that by repentance, healing will come and attempt to dredge up sin and bring it before God. But is that what God really wants? Is God sin-oriented? And we would say the gospel of grace says no. God is not sin-oriented. God is son-oriented. He's oriented around his son. He pays attention to, he gives heed to, he, we see in the gospels through the Old Testament prophecy that he points to the coming of his son and then exalts his son. And when we do the same through his word, it's amazing the revival that comes in our lives. When Jesus is lifted up, men are drawn unto him and we are drawn And when we get a glimpse of the character and nature of God, there is great potential in our lives. It humbles us. Yes, there's a desire to repent. And in that repentance, those wounds are healed. But it's the revealing of the Son of God and His mind that gives sustained ability to live an amazing life of holiness, a Christian life filled with joy and peace and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. We'd love to hear from you, so please go to our website and contact us. The web address is www.graceinpublic.com Yes, though we talk about historical revival and revival sweeping through an area, there's, there's a revival we have in our own life. If you've never experience the life with God if you don't know Jesus as your Savior. You can receive him today and have your own personal revival. So, I would ask you, pray a prayer with me. It's a very easy thing to do. Ask him to come into your life. Lord Jesus, I believe you. I don't know all that much about you yet, but I believe that you died on the cross 2,000 years ago for my sin in my place, that you were buried, that you rose from the dead, that you've moved in history, how you've changed people's lives, changed countries, and people throughout the world. I pray that you would come into my life and change me. On the basis of what you've done, I ask you to save me. In Jesus' name, amen.